You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Derek Kahn. And in today's episode, I'm going to be reviewing John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. Now, I get a lot of questions about this book, especially in regard to the Hard Men podcast, because it does deal with masculinity, feminization in the church, and a lot of the themes that we talk about in this show. Now, the book is subtitled Discovering the Secret of a Man's Soul, and it was first published in 2001, and then again in 2010 with a revised and expanded edition in which John Eldridge attempts to clean up some of the objections that were raised after the first printing. Now, the book made it to the New York Times bestseller list and has been very popular among many men within the church. In the book, Eldridge attempts to do really two main things. First, he points to the problem within the church. This problem, as he says, is why men are so neutered, lifeless, and apathetic. And then second, he presents his solution. So we're going to delve into those two areas in just a minute, and I'm going to examine them in depth. But the first thing I want to do is to address John Eldridge's critics. So first of all, while some people received it well, including Chuck Swindle, who called it, quote, the best, most insightful book I have read in at least the last five years, Eldridge's book also drew a lot of ire from both egalitarian and then more conservative constituencies within the church and within the culture. Now, it's not all that surprising that Eldridge's book has drawn its fair share of haters, especially in our gender-neutered society. On the one hand, you have the haters, the leftist feminist types, who disliked the book because it called men back to what they called outdated traditional stereotypes. Again, that's the kind of criticism you would typically expect. And it's not shocking that the green-haired man-haters would, well, hate a book calling men to reclaim their masculine identity. But what I think is more interesting and more insightful is the way the book was critiqued by conservative pundits who slammed Eldridge's theology. So, for example, you had Tim Challies, who wrote this back in 2004. A few months ago, I mentioned on this site that I was reading John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, and I had intended to write a review of it. After reading the book, I elected not to write a review at that time. The book was so full of error and absolutely ridiculous nonsense that I just didn't have the heart to document all of it. Honestly, I was frustrated and discouraged to see that a book like Wild at Heart could make it to the top of a Christian bestsellers list. End quote. Among the problems with the book, Challies says that Eldritch posits theologically problematic views of open theism, Satan, Jesus, Scripture, and how God reveals himself to us, or special revelation. Because of these issues, Challies said a book review, well, it was pointless. It wasn't even worth his time. Another one of the prominent responses, at least from the conservative reform camp, came from John MacArthur's radio point man, Phil Johnson. 
And Phil said of Eldridge's claim that men long for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue, quote, that is a little boy's lie. That's the stuff of children's fantasies. You simply won't find a description of manliness like that in Scripture. Instead, Scripture says that what motivates real men is a love for the truth, a contempt for error, and a passion for being used by God in the work of snatching people from the grip of the father of lies. End quote. Instead, Johnson says, real manliness is defined by what he calls Christ-like character, and in particular, doctrinal stability. Johnson then goes on to blast men who meet in pubs, drink beer, or partake of cigars while contemplating reform theology. He says it's nothing more than little ladies' tea parties, just in masculine form. Now, finally, Pastor Richard Phillips responded to Wild at Heart and sort of the whole phenomenon with his own book titled The Masculine Mandate. Um, I have a copy of that book. I read it. And in it, Phillips does a decent job answering some of the theological problems that are presented by Eldridge. And there are theological problems. We'll get to some of those. And he does another thing. Phillips is a little bit better than some of these other critiques in that he presents a rough outline of aspects of manhood from both the Old and New Testaments. So there are a lot of good things that he points out in the book. And I found it helpful at several points. For what it's worth, the masculine mandate was praised by Nine Marks' Jonathan Lehman, who in his review on the Nine Marks website admits his discomfort with talking about manliness. And I think that's one thing you'll find among Reformed conservative types, particularly those who are heavily influenced by the boomer generation. They don't even want to talk about manliness at all. It makes them uncomfortable. It makes them uncomfortable to even get into the category of what are men supposed to be doing with their lives. So here's one of the things I want to start with. I want to, I want to look at these critics and what they have in common, at least the conservative ones. So my first point is this. First, the critics from the conservative reform camp all have a pretty strong disdain for Eldridge and his book. The level of their engagement with the book amounts to a little more than a dismissal. An in-depth discussion of manliness is somehow beneath them. And I, I want you to catch this because men throughout the church loved the book, but many conservative church leaders hated it, and they sort of had this disdain. They seem rather disgusted that the book was so popular, and in this way they seem to reveal what I think is a bit of envy over the popularity of something so banal in their perspective. Second, while they are correct to point out certain theological issues with the book, many of which I'll share and expand on in just a moment, they fail to comprehend why the book was so popular among Christian men. And I think that this is the crucial error with the conservative critics of Eldridge's book. They simply fail to recognize why men in the church are languishing. They fail to admit that there are real problems with the effeminacy of the modern church, and they fail to put forward robust, thoughtful, and positive strategies for reclaiming biblical sexuality, particularly among men in the category of masculinity. Instead of recognizing that there is a real problem, there's a real hunger in the hearts of men that would make such a book like Wild at Heart appealing. Instead of recognizing this, and what many men in the church are dealing with, Johnson and others take on sort of a mocking, condescending tone. Like, what idiot would believe this? What idiot would be 
turned on by Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. Well, in fact, Johnson says desiring a battle, adventure, and a beauty, well, it's boyish and stupid. I think this is a grave mistake. Conservative critics are correct in pointing out problematic issues with Eldridge's teaching, but their own definitions of manliness are seriously lacking. For example, Phil Johnson reduces masculinity to doctrinal stability and Christ-like character, as if that was the end of the discussion. Richard Phillips goes a little deeper, but for the most part, I found his response to reflect the kind of vanilla teaching on masculinity that has been coming from conservative pulpits for decades. Be like Jesus. Love your wife. Study your Bible. Real men are nice. Real men go to church. That sort of thing. What they don't do is teach men practical, in-depth skills for living. This brand of teaching, in other words, comes across as nothing more than empty, tired platitudes that have left men hapless and helpless within the church. This is why men turn to other sources like the Manosphere. What I think so many of these conservative responses reveal is a boomer mindset among older church leaders that is badly out of touch with the issues facing men today. It's the same mindset that cannot fathom and is often jealous of, the way people like Jordan B. Peterson and others in the Manosphere have captured the attention of men. You can see this in the church leaders. They're sort of incredulous. Well, why is that popular? I've been teaching that for years. Or so they think. It's the mindset of old guard church leaders, and what they think is that if I just tell men to be like Jesus or study their Bible or like Phil Johnson, all you need is doctrinal stability. That's all it means to be a man. Well. What it does is it cuts men off at the knees. It does not recognize the highly feminized world in which these men live and in which is at war with men. So somehow these platitudes have fallen short and these leaders don't seem to understand why. Now the third point that I will make in regard to the critics, the conservative critics of John Eldridge is this. In outrightly dismissing his book rather than engaging with it, many of these critics miss the more subtle and destructive elements of John Eldridge's teaching. In all but outrightly dismissing John Eldridge, many conservative critics fail to recognize a bigger problem with his teaching. By the way, a teaching that is pervasive in much of the church. And that is John, John's reliance on Freudian psychology and moral therapeutic deism. We'll delve into these more deeply in just a moment. But for now, suffice it to say, it is the notion that man's central aim in life is about self-fulfillment through understanding and satisfying his own desires. Self is the nexus on which this moral philosophy depends. And it's a very shallow moral philosophy, by the way. This teaching has actually infiltrated, almost fully saturated, the American culture, including within the walls of the church. But few people have addressed its origins or problematic elements. Because so few have engaged in depth with Wild at Heart, many of its most destructive, its worst teachings remain unchecked. So we'll delve into some of those today. So now we get into the bulk of the review, and I want to break it down into three main parts. Number one, we're going to look at the good. Number two, we're going to look at the bad. And then number three, we're going to look at the ugly. Overall, there's a lot to appreciate about Wild at Heart. 
There's also some bones to pick out, and we need to do that. And there are some things to outrightly reject about John Eldridge's teaching. Now, before we delve into each one of these three things, I want to give sort of my overall take on Wild at Heart, which is this. I think that John Eldridge does a pretty phenomenal job early on describing in the opening pages the problem with a feminized culture, which is at war with men and which exists within the church. On the other hand, I think that John does a pretty awful job at pointing men to a viable biblical positive solution for this problem. In other words, his diagnosis is fairly accurate. His prognosis, not so much. While he makes some great points, I'd love to see more sound theology and less Sigmund Freud. I'd love to see fewer main points drawn from Hollywood and more from the pages of Scripture. I won't say that the book is a total bust. I don't think that it is. However, it's like giving someone a dinner plate and you haven't picked the bones out of the fish. Maybe a mature believer could probably handle picking the bones out, but it's not necessarily something I would hand to a child and say, good luck with those bones. After all, you don't want them to choke. So keep that in mind. You have to read the book with quite a bit of discernment. Now, as I delve into the review, I want to say that I personally benefited from the book in the past. And I know many of you have similar stories relating to the first time that you read Wild at Heart. I certainly have mine. I read the book first in the early 2000s. I think it was sometime after it came out, maybe a couple years. I was not at the time a practicing Christian. I was not going to church, but I would have told you that I was a Christian. So much of the problem in my own life was that I saw the church as female-dominated and, well, gay. I wanted to be a Christian, but I felt like that required me to hand over my man card. Every time I went to church, people wanted to talk about their feelings, and I didn't. I was a man. Why would I want to talk about my feelings? I connected, however, with Eldridge's book because he accurately described what it was like to be a man in the church. And much like society, the church preferred its men neutered and docile. John pointed this out, and it was very helpful. It was relieving to finally hear someone give voice to the problems that I had experienced in church and in culture, but could never really explain. Now, on the other hand, I was also negatively impacted by certain philosophies that are embodied in Eldridge's book and similar teachings like it that I experienced in the church after I became a Christian. John Eldridge relies way too much, way too much on pop psychology, on Freudian therapy and psychoanalysis, and a process of introspection that I found in my life, especially when combined with a fixation on personal desire, well, it leaves you empty. It leaves you shallow and ultimately immature. It's not a mature man who's constantly focusing on what his daddy said to him that upset him so much. It's the mature man who knows how to order his desire according to duty and principle. This is something that I found out much later. He also celebrates, John Eldridge does, an unbiblical view of divine revelation in which one is always looking for God to speak in these often bizarre ways, rather than simply relying on Scripture. In my own life, this has led to much instability, to much rummaging around in my own heart, and emotional childishness in my own life. I grew up in sort of a charismatic environment, so a lot of this stuff was happening in the culture around me anyway, and then the book sort of reinforced that. 
A lot of it was very unhelpful. So in this review, I want to unpack what's good, hopefully throw out what's harmful, and help each of you to move on to greater masculine maturity as we do so. So in turn, I hope that the conversation is helpful and edifying. So let's begin with the good. What are the good things about Wild at Heart? Well, first of all, John Eldridge is one of the few people over the last 20 years within the church to accurately identify and call out the problem of effeminacy within the church. He says this in the first chapter. Society at large can't make up its mind about men. Having spent the last 30 years redefining masculinity into something more sensitive, safe, manageable, and, well, feminine, it now berates men for not being men. Where are all the real men is regular fare for talk shows and new books. Well, you ask them to be women, I want to say. The result is a gender confusion never experienced at such a wide level in the history of the world. And then there is the church. Christianity, as it currently exists, has done damage to masculinity. When all is said and done, I think most men in the church believe that God put them on the earth to be a good boy. That's what we hold up as models of Christian maturity. Really nice guys. That's the end of the quote. So likewise, Elders deals with this Christian nice guy syndrome, which we talked about in that passage. And it's a view which looks at Jesus and in turn the ideal man is fundamentally weak. He's nice. And again, if you've listened to our show, we dealt with that in one of our episodes. What's the problem with the nice guy syndrome? John is really good at unpacking this problem. In chapter two, he rightly points out that there is something fierce in the heart of God and that God himself says about himself that he is a man of war. John Eldridge is really good at pointing out the views of this meek and mild Jesus, which are fundamentally flawed. Jesus isn't the nice guy that the soft left reform crowd has made him out to be in so much of the church. You know, Jesus did have a whip, and he did go into the temple with it. Jesus did have harsh language for the hypocrites and the Pharisees. So, so much of this nice guy language, John points out, and rightly so, is a product of a world awash with feminism. It has more to do with that than it does with the actual biblical record. And so at this point, I was rereading the book I started last week, and man, I was like on page five, and I'm just like, yeah, get him, John. So many of these points, I heartily agree with what he's saying. It's also interesting to me because John Eldridge has taken a lot of heat over the years for pointing out that the church is full of nice guys and, and overt feminism. So it's something that I can identify with, especially since I started producing this show. John's absolutely correct, and you will take heat. It takes a lot of boldness to speak this message in the midst of the culture today, because people, especially conservative nice guys within the complementarian church, they're very upset when you attack nice guy syndrome, right? Because that's what they've been holding up in their lifetimes as the model of masculinity. So I think for John, it took a lot of boldness for him to say this, for him to write this book. And I think it certainly won him many enemies within the church. I commend him for not taking the easy path. One of the central themes that Eldridge makes and the case he makes in the book is he says this. He said, men need a battle to fight. They need an adventure to live. And they need a beauty to rescue. That's on page 10. 
Now, Doug Wilson and Toby Sumter have said similar things. And if you've ever read G.K. Chesterton, you know, this is very, this sounds like a very Chestertonian thing. It's very C.S. Lewis. It's very J.R.R. Tolkien, right? The world is full of dragons and heroes. It's full of adventures and it's full of battles. As men, we seem to be particularly hardwired for risk and battle and for epic adventures. God himself defeats the dragon to win the girl. That's part of the storyline of scripture. We're a people that need to understand the main story. We need to find our place in it and live larger than cubicles and Netflix and three hots and a cot in our suburban prison cells. I get it, and I agree wholeheartedly with Eldridge on these points. The problem, with all that said, is the way that Eldridge defines the battle, the adventure, and the beauty. In the end, it's all pretty shallow, and it's all related to yourself, your heart, and your desires. What Eldridge lacks in his definitions of a battle, adventure, and beauty are the biblical themes of dominion and kingdom and great commission conquest, all things that are objectively outside of ourselves. As we'll see in a moment, he really reduces all of these categories down to, well, discovering your desires and trying to fulfill them. There's no talk of cosmic dominion, of kingdom conquering for the glory of God. There's no talk of building multi-generational households or cultural warfare. Instead, Eldridge locates each of these battles as fundamentally within the heart of man, which results in a shallow existence trapped in the cul-de-sac of the self. If he does talk about warfare, it's spiritual warfare, and he means within your own mind and heart. As a result of this, this reduces masculinity, well, to a purely subjective rather than objective journey. Something that, in the end, actually destroys masculinity. One of the virtues of men is that they need to learn how to live for duties and callings bigger than themselves and outside of themselves. In Eldridge's view, you just get lost in your own cul-de-sac of self. Now, the second thing I want to point to that is good about the book is that John Eldridge is a master of telling stories. He's a master of using narrative and engaging the minds of men with tales of war, movie heroes and characters, and different themes from popular culture and song lyrics. Now, recently, I was listening to Ted Cruz's podcast, Verdict, with Michael Knowles. And in it, he made a fantastic point. He said, one of the great failures of conservatism is that many of us think we can win arguments and change people's minds simply by reciting cold, hard facts. We think like accountants, not like poets. In contrast, Ted Cruz said, liberals are fairly good at telling stories that get to people's hearts. They grip people. They pull on the heartstrings. They stir your emotions. Even though their message is often completely untrue, we find that this is how people are swayed in the American culture. They tell stories from the left that are compelling to a large number of Americans. And I think it's something that we can learn from. People aren't swayed, for the most part, simply by cold, hard propositional truths, important as those propositional truths are. No, instead, people are swayed simply by these amazing stories, by literature, by drama. And so it's not surprising that huge portions of Scripture 
are themselves narrative in form. We get wrapped up with the story of Joseph or Moses or Esther, right? We get sucked in and it moves our heart. And this in turn works on our faith and on our character. So with the background in theater, Eldridge is a master at using narrative to rouse the manly passions of the heart. He relates well to men because he uses metaphors from elk hunting and Braveheart. He talks about soldiers storming a farmhouse on D-Day and more of this type of narrative literature to communicate his message. He doesn't fall back on empty Christianese platitudes and dry systematic theology terminology. He speaks in the language of the people in a way that's easy to follow and is very engaging. Now, I'm speculating at this point, but I think many conservative pastors are likely jealous of the way Eldridge has been able to connect with men in ways those pastors often are not. In reality, there's a lot to learn from John's style of communication, his use of manly metaphors, and his engaging storytelling style. The third thing that Eldridge does well in the book is that he does a good job of identifying many of the core desires that drive the masculine soul. This is related to the last point, but Eldridge really does seem to get what makes men tick. He seems to understand the mind and heart of men pretty well. He knows, both from literature and from history, that men are made for war. Men are made for adventure. They long to conquer battlefields, and they long to win the girl. Any study of literature will teach you these things, and John is quite astute and very well read. Far from being fashioned to be docile nice guys, men at their best are made for danger, they're made for aggression and risk and exploration. Likewise, Eldridge is right to draw contrast between men who fashion graham crackers into pistols and then little girls who organize play dates with their dolls. They're hardwired differently. So, I appreciate the fact that John is hardly a proponent of the gender-neutral society. And as far as I can tell, he does a decent job of pointing to some of those differences in the book. So, at this point, I want to move on and talk about some of the bad, some of the issues with John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. So, first of all, Eldridge relies heavily on Freudian psychology on moral therapeutic deism, and need theory, each of which centers life around the fulfillment of individual desire rather than objective moral standards, principles, or duties. Underlying everything that Eldridge says, especially from about chapter 3 and on, is the undercurrent of Freudian psychology. While this does yield some interesting insights at points, the Freudian system is fraught with atheistic presuppositions. Freud viewed his psychoanalytic approach as a replacement for Christianity, and he was outspoken about this. He once famously envisioned a day in which psychology clinics would replace churches on street corners. Freud's emphasis was largely on hidden motivations that must be brought out through psychoanalytic therapy and which were results of wounds and or suppressed desires or trauma that was created in childhood. Now, it's important to keep in mind with Freud that he did not view man as sinful, and he thought that human flourishing was possible only by removing societal restrictions 
on individual desires. So you figure out what's in the heart of man, you release those desires on the world, and that's going to lead to human flourishing. Obviously, we know that is absolute garbage. That's not how it works. You release human desire, what you get is Sodom, and the world destroys itself. So this is important to keep in mind when we're having this discussion about desires and the heart. So Eldridge is going to rely on concepts like the wound. He dedicates the entirety of chapter four to this. And really what he's talking about in the Freudian sense is this childhood trauma, right? And then after that, he's going to talk about the false versus the authentic self, both concepts that were developed as early as the 1960s, but ultimately are found in the writings of Freud have just been developed a little bit later on. So for Eldridge, every man has this wound, which was some traumatic event in which a father said or did something destructive so as to damage a boy's core identity, right? He tells the story of the kid who's playing the piano, and the dad says something super harsh and critical, and so this boy can't even function, he's in his 20s, and he can't hold a job, and so on and so forth. And John Eldridge will say, well, it's because of this, this wound, that, and so you need to deal with that wound. So dad failed you, he wounded you. As a result of that wound, which Eldridge says every man has, we set up a false self. In other words, we act like a poser. You know, we go and we, we do really good at our job or we work really hard. John will say this is, this is us being a poser to hide the wound. So there becomes this cycle of wound and false self, and it becomes the key grid through which men view themselves. It's also important to note at this point that John is pointing to a solution that calls for hyper-introspection. It ultimately calls for therapy, discovering these deep wounds and desires. Somebody has to draw these out of you, and then you have to constantly deal with them like over and over and over again in your life. This is the way, John says, that you are going to be healed. And he says, this is the reason we have such a problem with masculinity in our culture. So it's very important to catch this at this point. The solution is that you figure out the desires of your heart, and then you find a way to satisfy and to fulfill them. This approach is tied closely to moral therapeutic deism, or MTD, as some people have called it, a mushy pseudo-religion that has come to replace authentic Christianity in the West and in large part has become the de facto religion of choice. In a nutshell, moral therapeutic deism teaches that God orders the world, that he wants some form of moralism to exist in humanity, we should all be good. He only intervenes in our life when there's a problem, and here's the kicker, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Doesn't that describe just about every single American, even within the church? The central aim of life is to feel good about yourself. This is where Eldridge really goes with his teaching. His focus isn't ultimately on higher moral principles or historic objective standards of masculine virtue, the kind of things that I've described in this show as manly assertiveness, plain speech, physical strength, competency, tactical manly virtues, or taking personal responsibility to order your own existence well. Instead, Eldridge has rewritten masculinity to be nothing more than the subjective quest 
to discover your heart's desires and then spend the rest of your days trying to fulfill them. In other words, it's moral therapeutic deism. The hyperfixation in all of this with personal desire is, well, gay. John writes this, quote, What has God set in the masculine heart? Instead of asking what you think you ought to do to become a better man, right, that would be like a higher moral standard, John says this, Instead of asking what you ought to do to become a better man, I want to ask you, what makes you come alive? What stirs your heart? We must head into a country that has no clear trail. This charter for exploration takes us where? Where, John? Where are we going? We're going into our own hearts, John says, into our deepest desires. End quote. So this is one of those points in reading Wild at Heart where you're like, yeah, John, I want an adventure. Where are we going? Are we exploring the Antarctic? Are we taking dominion for Christ? Are we building institutions that will last thousands of years? Where are we going? And John says, we're going into our deepest desires. And I'm like, dude, have you been in my heart? My heart is like, it's not so cool sometimes. And the thing that we really need as humans is we need to get outside of ourselves. My favorite thing in the world about going into the wilderness is that I get to stand in the midst of creation and feel really small. And that's amazingly good. Absolutely do I not think that the solution to my masculine problems are found in my heart. I think they're found in scripture, and I think they're found in being called to higher moral standards, which have been true throughout history. So I think this immediately with John Eldridge, this is like a terrible dead end, and this is where he's taking us. So here's the other thing. John Eldridge is relying at this point on what has been called need theory. It is the basic conception that at his core, man is an empty vessel in need of filling. He's sort of like an empty gas tank. Men simply cannot function rightly without fuel. And in this case, people who tell them how special, important, powerful, and worthy they are. In turn, they help them fill their desires, and then they can now become complete people. By the way, The Love Languages book by Gary Chapman relies explicitly on this need theory. Look, we're all empty tanks. Empty love tanks is how he describes it. And so in order for me to obey God, like my mom and my dad have to pour into me. Now, this is enticing because so much of it is actually helpful. Obviously, people do, in some sense, need love, but it can really go off the rails. And I think that's what happens with John Eldridge here. By the way, at this point, I do want to recommend a book to you if you're interested in delving more into the need theory and some of the problems with it. I would encourage you to read Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. That's Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small. He does a really good job of pointing out how need theory is essentially encouraging people to grow more entangled in the fear of man. Now, how it plays out in Wild at Heart is something like this. Dad left a womb because he didn't affirm his son. And so now his son is wounded. He's, guys, he's walking through life. He basically has no legs. Because dad gave him a practically fatal wound. And in fact, at one point in the book, John Eldridge says of one of these instances where a father said something harsh, 
he uses the metaphorical language. He says he might as well have shot his son in the chest with a shotgun. It was practically life-ending, this criticism that the child received. And so at this point, you know, look, it's this view that people are incredibly fragile, right? That if we're so fragile that if like criticism could destroy us, and this is the problem, that's why we have a snowflake generation. And again, so Eldridge's response to this is he's like, we need constant affirmation. Our need as men is to hear from God and other men that, you know, they need to speak in our lives and they need to say, John, you're strong and you're powerful and you're sufficient and so on. And if we don't get this, then we're going to go through life crippled and fragile. What I want you to notice is this is exactly the same kind of drivel that comes out of the majority of popular women's teachings today. Like people like Rachel Hollis, Girl, Wash Your Face, and Rachel Held Evans, right? It's all about these, we're going to speak words of affirmation. Girl, you're strong, and you're powerful, and you're amazing. Like, does this make people godly and holy? Does this make people more manly? No, it makes them fragile little snowflakes, right? What's wrong with need theory? Well, ultimately, here's the other thing. It places moral responsibility in other people rather than in ourselves. In turn, it makes us effeminate, fragile little flowers who are just, we're just going to wilt unless somebody comes along to praise us. If we aren't faithful men, well, it must be because our father didn't tell us he loved us enough. As a result, we become powerless victims in life, not responsible moral agents. Others now have power over us because we need their constant approval. In the biblical language, as I said earlier, we become ensnared in the fear of man. And in the language of the Hard Men podcast, need theory makes us neutered, hapless victims and effeminate little people pleasers. I think this is a very, very, very dangerous and bad place for John Elders to take us. By contrast, as men, we need to wisely order our desires according to objective moral standards and principles. We need to look to our God-ordained duties. This is one of the reasons I love reading about Stonewall Jackson. This man went through trials, deep trials. His childhood was very difficult. He was an orphan. He grew up with rough and rowdy uncles and cousins. Like he, he had no great childhood. And then later in life, seem, seems like things are getting better. And what happens to Stonewall Jackson? His first wife dies while giving birth to their child, who also dies. He gets remarried. Finally, things are going to turn around. What happens? His first child is lost after birth. Right? This man goes through all these things, and people said to him, Thomas, what, what are you going to do? Like, these things have been so hard. And he says, I look to my duty and to God and his word. I know that I feel terrible right now. And my desire is to depart and to go and to be with my wife and my child. But he said, I have a duty set before me, and by God's grace, I will do my duty. Right? These are the things that have gotten me through tough times, not obsessive introspection. That does not help. Always looking for the hidden motivation in your heart. Always looking to, what was it in my childhood that bruised me? Look, there's a lot of things in my childhood that I could just reflect on and reflect on and reflect on. Look, here's how I look at it. My dad said some harsh things to me as a kid, 
And you know what? I look back on that now and I forgive him. And I know that I've said some harsh things to my kids and I've asked for their forgiveness. And look, we have to have a view of men as men that we're not fragile, delicate little flowers. We're resilient. We're tough. Bad things are going to happen to you. That's okay. You're going to get stronger. We don't need to go around constantly begging people to affirm us. As men, we shouldn't need that, right? We're not defined centrally by the things that happened to us when we were children. We're defined by what God's word says about us, right? Again, we're not fundamentally fragile. We're incredibly resilient. We need to treat ourselves and other, you know, our children, our male friends that way as well. Criticism is not something that has to crush us, even if it's malicious. Yes, the words of a father can be hurtful. You should forgive him. You should come to a resolution, realize it's not a fatal wound, and move on. Trial and adversity can strengthen us, and they should. And that's how, as men, we should view them. We should not view ourselves as delicate, fragile little buttercups. I hate that. As many manly men have discovered so much of life, and here's here's the real kicker. So much of life is about embracing duty when it conflicts with our present desires. This is why I hate all this talk about, well, the solution is figure out what your desire is and then try and satisfy your desire. As men, our focus ought to be on duty and what God has required of us, not on how we feel. We should not be thinking continually about the sins done to us, how others have hurt us. This will turn us into victim-minded people. That's not good. And we should not be thinking continually about what our perceived needs are. All of this is terrible. I've been there. I've done that. It's horrible. It will make you a selfish little baby man-child. Okay? What will grow you into mature masculinity is something that... Look, I I went through early on in marriage. I was a selfish little child because I believed all this stuff. Went through marriage counseling. Right, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, and the guy who was counseling me, he was like, Eric, he's like, you keep talking about what you think you need and what your desires are. He's like, what you ought to be focused on right now is obedience. You ought to focus on what your duties as a man are. Man, that was one of the most helpful things that ever happened to me. This is what men need. You need to focus on your duty and you need to do your duty. So the second thing I want to bring up in terms of problems, this, we're still on the bad. Problems with John Eldridge's wild at heart, ideology, philosophy, whatever you want to call it. Second thing is this. His anthropology redefines man's biggest need as healing a wound created in the past, which results in a view of sanctification that relies on therapy. So a lot of you probably are not going to understand this, but I've been in many churches that were impacted heavily by this sort of like pseudo-Christian psychology nonsense. And, you know, we'd have meetings and we would have to check in with other men and we'd have, how do you feel right now? And so much of it, like, the thing I hated most was rather than thinking and seeing men as fundamentally sinners in need of grace and in need of redemption, this anthropology that Eldridge describes, it's a fundamentally different view of man than Scripture. Right? It sees man as fundamentally wounded and in need of affirmation rather than sinful in need of redemption. So he's just this wounded, fragile little vessel 
and he needs affirming at all times. Now, it's true that John Eldridge does not outrightly deny that man is sinful. He brings this up many times in the book. I'm going to give him credit for doing so. But I want you to notice the flavor, the push, the bent. The, the main thing, there's not a chapter about man is sinful. There's a chapter about man is wounded. And so you'll notice in a lot of this psychology, Christian psychology sphere, that, like the definitions of how we think about ourselves just slowly over time shift. And so this becomes a, a key theme in a lot of very like pseudo-Christian worldly teaching. Again, the Rachel Hollis type stuff. It's not like you don't offend someone when you say, you know, you're wounded. That's not morally offensive in the same way that going to them and saying, you're a sinner and you need to repent of your wickedness, right? Scripture does talk about people being wounded, surely, but the the dominant theme is you're sinful and you need to repent and Christ has died for your sins right? And and you can find forgiveness in repentance and then healing. But again, this, you notice with this teaching, the dominant note is about man as wounded. That's how, that's the anthropology. Man is a wounded creature. He's an empty vessel and he just needs affirmation. So in turn, because of this anthropology, the process of growth, or what we would call in Christian theology, we call it sanctification, The process of growth is about introspectively understanding your desires and then finding ways to fulfill them. So so my question is, does that sound like biblical sanctification? Well, the answer obviously is no. One of the core ways that John Eldridge envisions fulfilling these desires is by finding really a therapist or a friend who will function as one. And what this person is going to do is going to tell you how special you are at all times. And then, as we'll get to in just a minute, if you can't find that friend, like John will just like essentially make up God talking to him, and God will then be the one who's filling your empty bucket. God will just be affirming at all times. And it's, it's interesting, too, because they, I'm getting ahead of myself, but they have this really bad view of revelation, special revelation, God talking to people. How does God talk to people? And I just find it interesting. God never like talks to them and says like, you're a jerk. You know that? (laughs) Everything God always says when people hear God talking to them, it's like, man, you're the best. You're the best of all men, John. So again, like this whole view of man is off. It's not biblical. It's not a biblical anthropology, right? It's not talking about repentance. There's no talk about that in the book. There's no talk about the brutal, manful task of self-denial, of taking up your cross, right? There's no talk of any form of discipline, higher moral purposes, or any sense of masculinity outside yourself. It's all about what's in your heart, man. Follow your heart. In fact, John will say at one point, he said, whatever the desires of your heart are, that points to your design. And immediately I'm like, John, I mean, you're just opening a can of worms. You don't realize that. Like some people want to have sex with animals. Some people want to do inappropriate things with children. Like, so their desire points to their design? No, clearly Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. I think going to a person's heart and saying, this is where we're going to find what God is saying to us in your desires. You do realize that like a huge portion of our population 
desires to do really horrible, wicked things. And we'll get into this in a minute, but John, John says, well, not you as a Christian, your heart's good. Right? So none of this talk about self-denial, none of this talk about repentance, the hard parts of the Christian life that we find all throughout Scripture. In turn, and because of this, man becomes a victim in need of approval, not a sinner in need of redemption. So that was point number two on bad things. Number three, John Eldridge's definition of masculinity is overly Gnostic and lacks physical components. So on page nine of the book, John argues that since God doesn't have a body, gender and sexuality must be about a person's heart and spiritual essence, and they must not be about that person's body. So this is one of those examples, it's a good example, and it happens throughout the book of John Eldridge's theological hack jobs. And I've had people say this, well, man, he never claimed to be a theologian. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but as a teacher, you've got to, you got to take that pretty seriously. I know I do. If I was writing a book like this, like, you know, teaching and training and discipling men as John Eldridge still does, I believe. Um, like I would, I would want to run that by a pastor, maybe like a good one. Someone who would say like, yeah, your theology's off here, man. Right. At the same time, you know, I'm sure John has had pastors look at this at the same time. It's hard to blame him. It's hard to be too harsh with him, honestly, because most evangelicals teach the same Gnostic form of sexuality. I mentioned this earlier, but Jonathan Lehman was praising Richard Phillips' book, The Masculine Mandate. And in his article, he's like queasy when talking about masculinity, particularly bodily masculinity. Throughout the book, John Eldridge will even say things like, I'm not advocating for becoming lumberjacks. I'm not saying we need to be macho men, or I'm not saying anything about us physically. I'm talking about your desires and your heart. Well, obviously, if you listen to this podcast, I think that's a a heinously Gnostic truncated view of what masculinity is. It, masculinity cannot be and isn't merely a spiritual reality. It's not just about the essence of your desires. In fact, I find that notion incredibly effeminate. At the end of the book, John will say this, and I'm quoting. He says, true masculinity is spiritual. True masculinity is spiritual, Confucius says. What does that even mean? I, I don't know. I think it's people trying to get out of addressing the physical real, real elements um, that are uncomfortable, particularly in our culture, to discuss. Things like men should not wear skinny jeans. That's gay. Don't do it. Right? They, we don't want to talk about that, so we just say, masculinity is about the essence. It's like a Zoolander clip. Water is the essence of moistness. And moistness is whatever the quote is, right? It's nonsense. Obviously, God gave us bodies. Jesus has a body, by the way. Little point of theology John doesn't seem to take up. Jesus has a body. We have bodies, and sexuality is related to those bodies. That that you even have to say that in the church today is ridiculous. But he just passes over it. True masculinity is spiritual. No, it's not, John. 
Again, one of the core arguments made in the Hard Men podcast is that sexuality and masculinity in particular has much to do with physical bodies and things like strength, skill sets, and competencies. Okay, we've been harsh. We've been harsh with John. We've gone through the bad. And now what I want to do is I want to go over the ugly because it gets worse. Yep, it gets worse. So we're going to delve into the ugly. First point under the ugly of Wild at Heart. What's ugly about this book? A lot of things are ugly. But first, Eldridge has an atrocious view of divine revelation. Atrocious. I know. I understand. I was once a charismatic. Not by choice. That's just sort of how we grew up. I kind of grew up in Denver in a lot of the same circles. Little James Dobson-y, Colorado Springs. And by the way, John Eldridge is down there. So we, we grew up not far apart. Um, that world is heavy into psychology. It's heavy into charismatic, um, you know, theology. Uh, God spoke to me because I saw a squirrel and a bird fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's how we were trained as kids to think by the church. How was God speaking to you? Well, I saw a leaf fall and it fell on the left side of my car. So I knew that God was telling me to go to the left. It's, it's absolutely horrible. Right, But this is what John does throughout the book. Toward the end of the book, though, especially, John describes the ways in which God supposedly speaks to him. Again, as I said, they're always affirming words. It's always exactly what he wants to hear. I don't know how that's possible. It is one of the most cringeworthy parts of the book. I wrote WTF about 40 times in like three pages. And I was sitting in my office and my wife came in. And she's like, why do you keep saying this is so gay? I was like, well, and then I read it to her and she's like, oh, oh, that's horrible. Like, I know, I know this is, this is cringeworthy and it is. So this is also a perfect example, by the way, I'm going to read a a little section. It's a perfect example of need theory, i.e. effeminacy in action. John is coming home from a conference and he tells this story and he writes in his journal and he says, what of me, dear Lord, are you pleased? What did you see? I am sorry that I have to ask, wishing I knew without asking. Fear, I suppose, makes me doubt. Still, I yearn to hear from you, a word, an image, a name, or even just a glance from you. <laughs> and on, I'm sorry, on the airplane, John says this. I, I know, it's hard for me to laugh because I know he takes this seriously. And I, yeah, it's, it's just cringeworthy. He says, this is, this is what I heard. Oh, man. This is God. God speaking to John. He said, John, you are Henry V after, <laughs> after Agincourt, the man in the arena whose face is covered with blood and sweat and dust, who strove valiantly. You, John, are a great warrior. Yes, even Maximus. That's, that's the end of the quote. So <clears throat> here's my point. <clears throat> this, this is actually a very serious issue that I find comically stupid. This is no different than Jesus Calling, right? You're familiar with that book, some of you. Some of you probably won't be. So basically, it's a devotional crapola book. This lady is like, uh, Jesus told me, and then it's just her thoughts. There are some pretty severe words in Scripture about those who would add to the words of God. and. The fact that people today think that they have the apostolic power 
to create divinely inspired words, particularly like, like, I wonder, I just, I want to ask John, like, Jesus told you you were Maximus? Don't you think maybe that sounds like you talking to you? I, I don't know, certainly not backed up by scripture. It's an unorthodox position. Um, none of the reformers would have held to that. Certainly not John Calvin. He speaks explicitly about this, as do others, throughout church history. Um, again, no different than Jesus Calling or any of these other authors that have made claims to have heard divine revelation outside of Scripture from God. Very popular in Christian writing, especially among charismatic movements, and also very unbiblical. Um, this is not... So they're claiming this is special revelation from God. Um, and then John sort of encourages this, like, take a walk in the park, and God will speak to you. Um, I also want to highlight that this view of special revelation and what John has done with need theory, man becomes like this desperate, cat-obsessed, overweight girl longing for some boy to tell her how award-winning her personality is. Right? It's like desperate. In fact, there's one section early in the book where John's talking about like the heart of women and what women need to hear. And he actually describes God like a needy woman. He's like, God is just longing for you to affirm him and praise him. And he just, he's holding his cats dearly, waiting for you, you jerk. He didn't return his texts or his calls. These cats are purring angrily in God's arms. Like, it's freaking blasphemy, dude. Like, it makes me so mad. Like, and here's the deal. Like, aside from the, the blasphemy on the God stuff, which it's terrible, and, and I'm rejecting it, right? But what does it make men? It makes men desperate. Like, this is so effeminate. Like, you have to go around being like, what of me, dear Lord? Are you pleased with me? Like, you're like a needy woman. Dude, read your Bible. God says that you're his child. He loves you. Believe it. Shut up. Act like a man. Do your job. Like if my kids came to me and they were like, what do you think of me, daddy? Are you pleased with me? What do you see in me? Do you see Maximus? I'd be like, dude, stop being gay. Come on. Like, here's your duty. Go do it. You know I love you. And I've told you a million times. And when you're authentically doing a good thing, I will praise you. But don't be this needy, desperate, whatever, you know? That's effeminate, and we should not cultivate that in our sons. So, again, that's point number one, the ugly, I hate, this view of divine revelation. Number two, second of the ugly, Eldridge's view of the human heart. And his focus on personal desire and his downplaying of indwelling sin, all of this is unbiblical, it's unhelpful. In some ways, I kind of feel bad for John Eldridge because I'm like, like, who are his teachers? Is no one willing to correct him in his church or explain these things better to him? I, I don't really understand. So this gets back to the very, it's like new age spiritualism, the, the words of empowerment. John does this all the time in the book. He's like, you, sir, are strong. You're amazing. I'm like, how the hell do you know that? You don't even know this guy. He could be a dirtbag. Maybe he's not strong. Maybe he hasn't earned that. Like, how do you know? How do you know this guy's strong? But again, it 
all of this, this words of empowerment and follow the desires of your heart at all costs, it all depends on a view that assumes that people are inherently good. And it's true, John holds this view. He tries to balance it with some scripture about sin, yada yada, here's some sin scripture. But it turns out to be a pretty bad theological hack job, yet again. Like the first time I tried to cut my own hair as a two-year-old. It's basically what this looks like. So this is what John says. This is John in his own words. He says, you are the hero. Oh my God, how do you say this with a straight face? You are the hero in your story. You're not a bit player. You're not an extra. You're the main man. Okay, first of all, John, you worked in theater. Is every person on stage the main man? Is that even humanly possible? Like, you directed theater. Is that even possible? You manage a theater company. Is that actually a true statement? No, it's not. Maybe some of us are bit players, and that's okay. Okay, he goes on. The power is in us. The big lie in the church today. What's the big lie, John? The big lie in the church today is that we are nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. Like I read that and I was waiting for more. Like, oh, wait, that's the big lie? I'm pretty sure that's a big truth. What are you talking about, John? He goes on. He says they've had Jeremiah 17.9 drilled in their heads and they walk around believing their heart is deceitfully wicked. Oh, this is one of my least favorite sentences in the book. He says, not anymore, it's not. You have a new heart. Did you hear me, Mr. Words of Affirmation? Your heart is good. That's on page 136. If you want to look it up, that's in the new and revised edition. So what's the problem with this statement? Well, I think it downplays the reality of indwelling sin, even in believers. John kind of talks about this, but like this conception of like your heart is good. If there's sin in your life, it's not you, it's the flesh, which is, you know, there's truth there. But like after we're saved, there's a reality of sin that would definitely still make me not trust my own heart. I would want to ask other people. I would want to check my desire every time. I would want to check my desire no matter what against scripture, duty the clear teaching of God's word, right? Our desires as men, we know this. Our desires are not things to, be, to lead us. They're things that we need to lead and control and keep in check in our lives according to principle and according to the clear teaching of the word of God. So yeah, this is, again, some of my frustrations, but this is... Uh, this is where the, the book gets really bad. And I think that can be really dangerous for people. Okay, so I want to summarize Wild at Heart at this point. Um, for those of you who are VIP members, by the way, we will be having a discussion both in the Marco Polo chat room and then also try to set up a Zoom call with you guys, those who are interested, so that we can discuss some of these issues. I'd love to hear your feedback. So my summary, my summary, as I recently reread Wild at Heart, I was transported back to a time early in my Christian life, right? You think this is going to be like, oh, and it was daisies and roses. No, I was transported back to a time in my early Christian life when I had an immature faith, charismatic leanings, and I was overly dependent on my emotions and desires. What would the me of today say to the me back then? I think I'd tell myself exactly what I tell John Eldridge. 
More theology, less pop psychology. More doctrine, less pop culture. God has spoken once and for all in perfect, all-sufficient clarity. What more can he say than to you he hath said? And he will speak to you every time you open his word. You don't need to chase weird, quote-unquote, encounters with God. You don't need to shake a stick or flip over a fleece and see what the dew does, or somehow hear him say that you are, in fact, Maximus the Gladiator. His word is clear to you who are his people, and it is clear when it says you are his adopted son. You're forgiven. You're eternally loved. You're washed clean in the blood of Jesus. And you know what, men? That's enough. Maximus has got nothing on that. Life is actually a much freer place when you don't have to rummage around in your own heart all the time. But instead, you can focus more on God's word, your duty, and objective realities outside of you. The self, as I've found many times in my life, really is a cul-de-sac of despair. It is not the path of freedom, nor are the desires of your heart when left unchecked. Yes, desire is a powerful and a good thing. When we lean not on our own understanding, when we trust in God, and when we commit faithfully to obey his commandments, he will give us the desires of our hearts. And they're powerful and they can be very good. But they need to be ordered by the principle of God's word at all times. Some years ago, I was worshiping at a church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I came out of this sort of charismatic phase of rummaging around in my own heart. Every church service was about, I need to come to church, I need to wade through my desires, I need to figure out what's going on in here. Wait, you know, I get into service, I, I sung that song, but I'm not sure my heart was totally in it. Oh my God, it feels horrible. What am I doing? Why am I even singing? Why am I even here? I shouldn't take communion, right? You, many of you have been there. I was worshiping at a church in Louisville, Kentucky. Bill Smith was the pastor. He's now in Southern Illinois. I love Bill. He's a manly, 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 godly pastor. We had just confessed our sins, and our pastor, Pastor Bill, he said words that changed my life forever, just so powerful as he was pronouncing the absolution of our sins. You confess your sins, and then the pastor pronounces the gospel blessing of forgiveness. And as he did so, he said this. He said, how you feel right now, it does not matter at all. What matters is what Jesus says about you. So believe that. Right? That was so powerful in my life because I think this is, this is a masculine trait. Our feelings are wrong. Our desires are wrong. They're wrong all the time. Rummaging around in your heart is not a path to freedom. The path to freedom is learning how to trust God's promise, his word, and walk in a path of duty and obedience even when you don't feel like it. Yes, you pray that your heart would be brought along. And what do we find as men? It's what I tell my sons all the time. They say, Dad, but I don't want to. And I said, well, do it. Pray to God that you would do it cheerfully. And trust me, as you do it, your heart will change. It's part of the grace of obedience. So, would I recommend this book, Wild at Heart, today. Honestly, I don't think I would. I think there are better places. There's not many of them, but I think there are better places to go for content that isn't full of bones you might choke on. 
Again, there's not many options, but a few things that I would recommend to you. I know many of you will be familiar with it, but in case you're not, I would recommend It's Good to Be a Man with Michael Foster and Non-Tenant. You can also check out Michael's podcast, This Is Foster. You can find those. I think you can check Michael out on Twitter, and you can generally find all of those links. The other one that I would recommend, if you're interested in fathers and sons, kind of the dynamic there, and kind of what's wrong with our culture regarding the generations, I really highly recommend Doug Wilson's book, Father Hunger. So much better at tackling that issue, not laced with the arsenic of Freudian psychology. Uh, It's very good. So Father Hunger by Doug Wilson. And then again, for a better understanding of the pitfalls of need theory and psychology, I just can't highly recommend enough Ed Welch's book, which is titled When People Are Big and God is Small. Again, that's Ed Welch, and it's When People Are Big and God is Small. Really helpful uh, at breaking down need theory, psychology, and the intersection with so much of the Christian life. As always, I hope this episode has been helpful to you. And we'll give a special shout out to our Patreon supporters, especially those who have joined in the last couple weeks as VIP supporters. If you're not a VIP supporter, you can become one today and you will receive a VIP Hardman Podcast 16-ounce pint glass. Our first batch of those, by the way, were shipped out this week. So you can have a nice frosty beer on us. You get to look at the Hardman Podcast logo. You can also buy more of those for your friends and your buddies as you listen to the podcast and discuss in your gang of men. As always, you can follow me on Twitter. That's E-R-I-C underscore C-O-N-N. You can sign up for my newsletter or follow my writings at ericcon.com. That's E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N dot com. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.